Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. You know, it takes a lot of chutzpah to run for president of the United States, a lot of brass, and that is particularly true if you're a little-known three-term congressman. But John Delaney is used to long odds, the grandson of immigrants, the son of a union electrician from New Jersey. Delaney had tremendous success in business from an early age, went on to defeat a uh, Republican incumbent for a seat in the House from Maryland, and has spent much of the last year in and out of Iowa pitching a decidedly centrist case for the Democratic nomination. I sat down with him in Chicago recently to find out just what he and that campaign are all about. John Delaney, welcome uh, here. I think the operative mission here of the next hour is to answer these questions. Who the heck is John Delaney and why is he running for president? Uh, So let's start with the first first, because um, uh, we have some common linkages. I I know that your grandparents uh, were immigrants uh, from Ireland and England. Mm And they wound up in Jersey City. Uh, And my grandfather was uh, an immigrant from Russia, and he wound up in Jersey City, which is where my mother grew up. So um, tell me a little bit about your family. So uh, first of all, thank you for having me, David. It's great to be here. Uh, you're right. My I'm three quarters Irish, one quarter English, because uh, three of my grandparents were Irish, and uh, my grandfather was English. And everybody got along, huh? They, yeah, they, reasonably well. <laughs> and they were all from Jersey City. And then uh, I grew up in a little town called Woodridge, which yes. is right outside, right near a giant stadium. But uh, my one grandfather, it's funny, I talk a lot about my one grandfather in particular on the campaign trail because he has a very interesting story. He came to this country in 1923 with his seven brothers and sisters and his mother. And they came in on a ship. And when I went back Just and did... From Ireland. No, this is from This is from the England. Yeah. <clears throat> and when I went back and did research on it, he came in on a ship. And the day he the ship came in, in August of 1923, 15 ships came into New York Harbor that day from Europe, bringing 15,000 immigrants, which is just an amazing thing to think about what it must have been like. And uh, his seven brothers and sisters were led into the country. But he was detained. And the reason he was detained is because he only had one arm. And back then, we didn't allow people into the country who had disabilities. And they used to give them what was called a six-second physical. So they'd look at them for six seconds to make sure they were okay, and then they'd let him into the country. So he was detained and scheduled to be deported. So they sent him to Staten Island, and he was all set to be deported. He was a little boy. He was, you know, 11, 12 years old. But the rest of his family got in? The rest in. got in. But they appealed the decision because you were able to appeal. And so he finally got a hearing in front of a judge. And the hearing was held in the Great Hall of Ellis Island, where you've mm-hmm. probably been. Yes. And there were hundreds of people in the, in the, in the appeal waiting for the, to get there, probably six seconds in front of the judge. And my grandfather used to tell the story around the uh, Thanksgiving table. The judge walked in, and he was putting on his robe. And my grandfather saw that the judge had one arm as well. Wow. And that's really the only reason he was let in the country, because the one-armed judge let in the one-armed boy and told him to make something of his life. So he went on to settle in Jersey City, and he worked in the Joseph Dixon Pencil Factory for his whole life, which was right there in Jersey City. And so that was my grandfather on my mother's side. Yes. And then my grandfather on my father's side was a dock worker in Jersey City. But they all moved to Woodridge, which is where I was born. Um, and uh, your, your dad was a union he was. electrician. Right. 
who's a 60-year member of the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, which, um, and he loved it. I mean, he was so, he, w- he loved being an electrician. He loved being in the union. He loved his union buddies. And, uh, you know, that union created a good life for us. And in fact, when I went to college, I went to Columbia University, I had a scholarship from the IBW, which allowed me to go. They paid for half of my tuition. First so he was an incredibly hardworking, strongest person I ever knew. My dad was the kind of person who could like turn a rusty bolt with his bare hands. And, and did you go out on his rounds with him? All the time. It was one of the thrills when I was a kid. I would uh, kind of get in his pickup truck. He always had a pickup truck and uh, go to his job sites. You know, he used to go Saturday mornings kind of to check him out. And there were a lot of big industrial projects going on in New Jersey at the time. He worked most of his career at the Meadowlands. So first he was working on Giant Stadium. It used to be called Giant Stadium. And then the racetrack and then the uh, arena. And that actually was a very transformative project. He had been out of work for about a year in the early 70s. And then they, they basically redeveloped the whole Meadowlands and, and he started working. Again, and he worked there pretty much most of my growing up. When you, so it was cool for me as a kid to get in his pickup truck, go down and watch them building a stadium. Do you remember when he was out of work? I do. I do. It was, uh, it was in the early 70s, and it was about 18 months. I mean, he would do some side jobs, but uh, it was really slow. And, and was, that was pretty the only time he was out of work. Were there, was there anxiety around that? Yeah, you could feel it. I mean, I was, a, a, I was eight, nine years old. But it was, uh, yeah, I, I, I still remember the times because he would get up and, and he would try to figure out what to do. And a bunch of he and his buddies would do odd jobs to make some extra money. And uh, he kept himself busy. He was always working. I think the, um, the thing we often miss in this discussion about, about work is... Um, not just that it's more than a paycheck. It's the dignity of it. The notion of waking up and not having something to do. Right. Not, ha- not contributing, not being part of something is a really, really soul-crushing mm-hmm. experience. Right. Um, so I and my dad took great pride in his work. And, he, you know, he had so many relationships from it. I remember he passed away about two years ago. And I remember at his, at his uh, funeral, we had a wake in a little kind of small funeral home and only had one viewing room. And the wake was at three o'clock. And I was there with my sister and my mom and our family. And at 2.45, I go out to the front of the funeral home and there's a line of about 60, 80 to 85 year old guys hmm. lined up. They were all his buddies from, from, the, from work. From, yeah, yeah. There, were, there were, you know, electricians or plumbers or carpenters. One of them made a joke that there was a lot of bar stools empty that afternoon <laughs> in the local town. <laughs> so but I know all these, you know, I, I, I used to hang out with them all the time. He had buddies who were not only electricians, but plumbers and carpenters and masons. And for a while, that's what I thought everyone did because everyone I knew worked with their hands. So there are a couple of things that strike me about all this. One, you know, just going back to the story of your grandparents coming over. Uh, 1923 was actually, but by 24, the immigration laws of the country became much more restrictive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, we, we were talking about this before we started recording about what these waves of immigration have meant to this country. And, you know, we go through these periods where there is a strong reaction to immigration, negative reaction. Uh, to immigration and to new groups of people uh, coming in. But uh, your family is but one example yes. uh, that uh, these, these generations of immigrants have reinvigorated our country, renewed our economy, you know, had a, an enormously positive influence. And you talk to economists, and as we will get into, you're someone who's lived in the world of finance and around economics, and they talk about the need for immigration in order to keep the economy going and you know to 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 uh, to keep the the um, numbers of workers we need up and the and the sort of creative energy up right. in the country well i mean there's nothing worse for a country than have it have a shrinking population if you look around the world if you look at places like russia which have shrinking populations and other countries in europe that have shrinking population 
it just completely destabilizes kind of the economic model of the country because they effectively don't have new people coming into the workforce to fund what is increasingly becoming a more expensive uh, society to run because people are living so much longer. And so it's an amazing blessing to have a growing population. I mean, the United States has a birth rate that is self-sustaining, which is actually becoming pretty unique in the developed world. A lot of these countries have birth rates that are not self-sustaining. Although birth rates were down in this country quite a bit the last couple of years, which is a concerning sign. So it's, it's terrific to have people wanting to come here. I think it's one of the great advantages this country have. I mean, I, my sense is 80 to 90% of the people in the world, if they had an opportunity to come to the United States, they would. And if you think about it as if you're running a company, imagine if you were running a company and 80 to 90% of the workers in that industry wanted to work for you, you would view that as a huge asset. You know, immigrants are entrepreneurial, they start small businesses, they infuse communities, they are kind of the beating heart of this nation. You know, my wife and I went down to the border two weeks ago, I guess it was three weeks ago now, and we went to a place called Dilly, Texas, which is right outside of San Antonio. And uh, in Dilly, Texas, there's the largest detention facility that this country has. It, at the time, it was housing about 1,700 women and children who were seeking asylum from Central America. And after they come to this country, they are detained, they're put in a temporary detention facility, then they go to this facility in Dilly, where they have an opportunity to make their preliminary asylum case. So we went down there, we took 14 Georgetown Law students and two law professors uh, to go here and help process asylum cases on behalf of these asylum seekers. And um, it was just an extraordinary experience just to hear these stories firsthand and see these people come into our country for a better opportunity. And to some extent, as I was sitting there, I'm saying to myself, you know, there's probably someone like my grandfather here, right, who's going to get in and really build a life for themselves. And maybe the fact that we're here will make a difference. Because we need a little shared humanity in some of these decisions we're making. We do, uh, but there's also probably someone like, not not your like your grandfather per se, but there are people um, in that sort of demographic mm -hmm. uh, who are deeply moved by the president's anti-immigration message. Why? Well, in my opinion: the world has changed really fast over the last several decades, and largely because of globalization and technological innovation. And we didn't do the kind of things we should have done as a country and as a society to prepare our citizens and our communities for this change. And as a result, a lot of people were left behind. And those people are looking for an answer as to what happened. And the president has created a villain that isn't really the villain, but it was an easy villain for him to frame and point to, particularly in communities where people haven't had a lot of experience with immigration or don't live side by side with a lot of immigrants or have this perception that immigrants are taking their jobs. So rather than pointing at the right villain, which in my opinion is a broken political system that failed to do the kind of things we should have done to prepare our society for this change, he was able to create the wrong villain, right? Which is effectively change, progress, globalization. I mean, globalization, which he vilified. And I gotta say, even people in our party have really questioned. If you look at the facts, if you look at what globalization has done for the world, I mean, in 1950, about 25% of the world was interconnected globally, and the global poverty rate, I think, was 75%. You fast forward to today, it's more than reverse. About 80% of the world is interconnected globally, and only about 10% of the global population lives in abject poverty. Listen, so it's been extraordinarily important. But we I, left I so many behind, and that, well, that was the problem. That, uh, and so that, he was able to pray. I, yeah, I mean, that. I imagine that there are a lot of the, the people who feel left behind who say, because remember, you know, we, we essentially defined the middle class in the right. 50s and 60s, and, and now, uh, you know, some of the bounty has been spread globally. Yes. and as you point out, has lifted, you know, hundreds of, of millions, billions of people out of poverty. But you can see people saying, yeah, but, you know, I'm on the losing end right. of that uh, equation. So, um, you know, I, I think it's for you as someone who's aspiring to become 
president of the United States and anybody who does, um, explaining the benefit uh, to Americans of that. Uh, you know, I, I think there is a humanitarian benefit to it. There's also a security benefit mm-hmm. to it. There's, an econo- there's a long-term economic benefit to it f- to create markets. Right. It's, clear, it's clearly made, in my opinion, the world safer and more secure for Americans. But to your point about what's happened to our country, I mean, huge parts of our country have been left behind. This, the, the, one of the things I point out when I'm talking to people in Iowa and New Hampshire that really, I think, gets their attention is last year in our country, 80% of the money for new businesses, kind of startup capital, venture capital, if you will, 80% of it went to 50 counties in the country. So you have 3,100 counties, and 50 of them got 80% of the startup capital for new businesses. And that, to me, is a story of what's really happened to our country. Because if, you lived in a, if, you, if you're living in a town in Iowa that used to have a Maytag plan, and it leaves because it's Newton, Iowa Mexico. did. Exactly. That's what I was going to say. What that really means is someone stopped investing in your town, right? Because Maytag used to invest in your town. They built a plan. They hired people. They would buy new machinery, new equipment. They'd maintain the plant. They'd invest in the town. And then they left in pursuit of cheaper wages, and they moved that plant overseas. What we didn't do as a country is have real policies to make sure people then invested in that town again or invested in towns like it. And that was the failing of our country across the last 30 years. We were thinking globally, which was the right thing to do, but we stopped investing locally. And what the president has said to people is he's going to bring all that stuff back. Well, in truth, you know, when that Maytag plant left Iowa, probably 70% of its its cost were workers. It's probably now 20% wherever it is. So even if he brought them back, it wouldn't have the same number of jobs. And what he hasn't done is done anything to encourage people to invest in these communities. And there's real things we can do to get private sector investors to invest in these communities, to encourage companies to locate there. Simple things like requiring 25% of the government contracts in this country to be issued to government contractors that have 50% or more of their employees in these kind of communities. That would give people a reason to locate there. If you provide federal tax incentives for investors to invest in these distressed communities, if, you, if we actually finally built infrastructure with a disproportionate allocation, if you doubled the earned income tax credit for people living in these communities, those four things right there, that simple agenda, incentives for private investment, getting infrastructure going, creating an incentive for government contracts to locate, and then doing things to make it easier to hire workers, but the workers being able to afford a decent standard of living, those four things together, they wouldn't turn around every community in this country, but they turn around a huge numbers of them. And we'd be looking at a totally different map in terms of where jobs are being created in, I think, a relatively short period of time. These are the things this president hasn't done, right? So when he talks to people about what he's going to do for them, I mean, I just drove from New Jersey out to Iowa, took my dad's pickup truck because I'm going to drive it around Iowa, and I drove past Lordstown where 5,000 people are losing their job. And you've got 5,000 people, men and women at home, trying to probably explain to their kids why they're not working. And trying to think about, okay, what's going to replace the job that I used to have, which paid me a really good wage and supported my family. And so we got to have real policies that actually create jobs in these places. But what we really have to do is stop fighting politically and actually start getting some of this done. Because the cost of doing nothing is not nothing for huge parts of the country, right? Huge parts of the country have paid a huge price because of our, all our political fighting. We haven't done the basic things we should have done to update our society and the institutions and the laws and the tax incentives to encourage real investments in parts of these countries. Because when I go to small towns in Iowa, it's the number one thing people say to me, which is, will my children or my grandkids be able to have a job in this town? Right. And they look around and they don't think so. Right. And, 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 they, and they may well be right. And they may well be right. So that, to me, is an is a cr- incredibly important issue. It's an it's a issue the president kind of ran on and he hasn't done anything about. But it's the reason people feel the way they do. The other part of your biography that, that sort of relates to this discussion uh, is the fact that your dad was in a union for right. 60 years. That You said the union provided scholarship money so that you could go uh, to college. Uh, the during this period of rapid change that you've spoken about, 
we've seen essentially the, the dismantlement of the labor movement that lifted up the middle class. Um, and partly it's because of, um, of global competition mm-hmm. and the fact that uh, with markets, uh, w- with uh, labor markets now available in other countries where there weren't, uh, where there was an organized labor and where ch- labor was cheaper, you, you saw the kinds of moves that Maytag made. Um, is that a is, is revival? How do you how do do uh, workers uh, regain a voice in this economy that's increasingly being determined by publicly uh, publicly traded companies where the quarterly report is, you know, we used to have companies where the owners felt a sense of investment in their employees and vice versa, and that's less so now. So we, we obviously need to do things to make it easier, in my opinion, for workers to organize. And so supporting unions at the local level so they have the ability to organize and dealing with that federally where the laws are relevant, but also making sure, in my opinion, states sh- should have a legal framework where people can organize. And this movement for these, quote, right-to-work right laws, I think, has been very anti-union. But I think we got to do more than that because I don't think uh, just supporting unions is enough to change some of these trends. We, we have to get at this notion of capitalism and trying to make it more just and inclusive. Because the, the other problem with, with the diminished number of unions in this country is not only do you not have as many workers who kind of had the kind of benefits my dad and and my family had growing up but you also don't have unions being as big of a voice in terms of fighting for the change we need in society because the one thing one of the reasons I'm a strong supporter of the labor movement is not just because I want workers to be represented uh through a union but my sense is everything or unions to support you for president well but yeah there's that but but Everything that's positive that's happened to a worker in this country has largely been because of the labor movement. In other words, they're the only people in the country who work up every day and fight for workers Mm -hmm. every day as their sole mission in life. So if you drive down the highway these days and you see someone on the side of the road with a helmet and a vest, they're probably not in a union, but they're wearing the helmet and the vest because some union fought for those rights. And you go down the list, you know, whatever, starting with child labor laws, going all the way up through the 40-hour the work week, whatever the case may be. And there's things we need in our society right now, like paid family leave and another kind of basic benefits to make the workplace more just for so many people. And the fact that unions play less of a role in our country has also hurt the movement to make that stuff happen. I want to come back to this when we talk about your own uh, history and business um, and ask what... Um, corporations themselves should be asked to do and where it's appropriate for government to 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 intervene and where government not uh, to intervene but I, I should I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, uh, pick up on one other element of your biography I, I uh, and that is faith um, I like many immigrant families, uh, your, your, your family was a, a, a Catholic family. You were raised that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, how, how important was that to you then? How important is it to you now in terms of informing your worldview? Well, I think a lot of the, my social justice orientation in life, a lot of it comes from my faith. Right, because I did grow up in a Catholic family, and church was important to us. We went to church. I lived a block from the church. Right, so we would walk up the hill and go to church every week. My mother used to go during the week uh, days for evening kind of events at the church, so she would take me around. So I was around the church a lot. The faith, my, our faith's important to my wife, April, and I. We have four daughters. We're active Catholics. We're very much involved in our church, particularly Catholic charities, organizations like that. So I think a lot of my social justice orientation comes from my church. So it's a it's a it's a big part of it. I mean, you have. I mean, in my opinion. Faith is a good thing. I mean, running for president is a bit of a leap of faith. So uh, I would say so. Yes. Yeah. So uh, yeah, it's really important. And I, and I think, you know, the part of my church I identify the most with is the social justice mission. And I think my church, the Catholic Church in particular, its best side is shown when it's helping the poor. And that's always been really important to April and I, and hopefully our kids. How have you navigated as a politician, navigated the tensions over uh, abortion and uh, 
gay rights and yeah. some of the issues on which the church hasn't been uh, particularly progressive. What's funny, when I first ran for office, I sat down with, uh, with my priest and I said, you know, uh, Father, I'm going to run for office and I'm going to talk about a lot of things that I don't agree with my church on right now. And the first was marriage equality because it was a big issue in Maryland at the time when I ran for Congress because it was a referendum. They had passed marriage equality, but it was being challenged through a referendum process. So I was a strong supporter of marriage equality, and it was going to be a big part of my campaign. And he listened. And uh, I said, and the other thing is women's reproductive freedom, right? You know, I'm, I'm a pro-choice candidate, and, and I fully support women's reproductive freedom. And we had a good conversation. Uh, was this in the confessional? Or was no, this it was just a normal conversation. <laughs> and uh, he, you know, he, he, he basically said to us, listen, you're good people, and the things you're going to fight for we care deeply about, and even if we don't agree with you on everything, we'll pray for you. That, uh, and that was how I, that was, that was how I launched the bishop, my politi- the, Some of the bishops have approached, approached that differently. Yeah. With- but, you know, my approach with everything is to be really honest and upfront about it. And I think when people hear something from you first, if, if they're not going to agree with it, and I'm sure my parish priest, you know, but that's how I handled it. So I haven't had any issue with it because I'm a strong supporter of gay rights. I'm a support, strong supporter of women's reproductive freedom and pro-choice. I'm also a strong supporter of other things that I think my church cares deeply about, like taking care of the immigrant, taking care of the poor, making sure we have the kind of basic social contract in our society that gives people a helping hand and gives them the basic rights to food security and housing security and things that I think are so essential for human dignity. Um, So I've just dealt with it in a very open, honest way, and I'm very comfortable talking about my faith, and it's important to me. But again, that doesn't mean I agree with everything in my church, and it certainly doesn't mean that my personal religious beliefs should influence public policy in this country, which I think is an important conversation for us to be having these days. Although you point out that your social justice orientation very much flows from that. So. But, that, that, it def- but again, it's not what I want to do from a social justice perspective, perspective is in kind of a doctrine of my church, mm-hmm. right? It informs who I am as a human being. Mm-hmm. You... Uh, you went to Columbia. You thought you were going to be a doctor. I did. So that, what happened there was my, uh, my mother had a brother who was a very successful physician. He was an academician. He ran a department at Harvard. It was a leading researcher in gerontology. He was one of the founders of the field in gerontology. And he was kind of the success in the family. And I was a good student. And so my parents wanted me to be a doctor. And so they worked really hard for me to be a doctor. And uh, then I was at Columbia, and I was doing research at Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center. I was working in St. Luke's Hospital in the pediatric emergency room. And in my sophomore year, it became pretty darn clear to me that I didn't want to be a doctor. Why? You know, I just didn't like it. I mean, it just didn't, you know, I, it just didn't really, I didn't have a real, I mean, I had enormous respect for the profession, and I found the science interesting. But it just didn't feel like that's how I wanted to spend my life. I was probably searching for what I wanted to do, but I kind of knew I didn't want to do that. And I was living with some kids who were going to law school. And so I basically decided to go to law school to tell my parents that in the same conversation. Huh? I was like, so let, let, let's sit down here. And I've decided I'm not going to be a doctor, but I'm going to go to law school. Because in my view back then, in their minds, that was something that they thought would be good for their son. who they it had Primarily, would say, why don't you make a good living? It probably... And so you went to Georgetown. I went to Georgetown. Were you, when you were at Georgetown, did you, you know, uh, sort of politics is in the air down there. Yeah. Uh, did you get involved at all in, in politics while you were in law school? No, which was interesting. I mean, I was always hard somewhat, to do at Georgetown. Yeah, I mean, you know, I was, uh, it's the first time I'd ever really been that far away from home, to be honest with you. You know, one of the reasons I went to Columbia is my parents wanted me to be close to home. But that was the kind of family I grew up in. I met my wife at Georgetown, which is the best thing that ever happened to me. She had had much more exposure to the world than I had. She grew up in Idaho. She was the daughter of a potato farmer, but she had traveled all around the world. She went to Northwestern here, where two of my daughters also went, by the way. And uh, so we met in law school, and uh, that's why we actually stayed in in the D.C. area. But I I didn't become that involved in politics. I kind of figured out in law school that I wanted to be an entrepreneur because I had to work through law school, and I was working in a law firm where it was a small law firm, and half the lawyers were practicing law, and but... 
the other half were kind of engaged in businesses and doing startups and stuff like that. And uh, that's where I eff- effectively got the itch that I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And before very long, five years, you started a, a company called Healthcare Financial Partners, which uh, was became an extraordinary success. Ta- talk about that and why you... This this wasn't to mollify your parents about not no. going into medical school, was it? So, so after law school, we stayed in the D.C. area because uh, April didn't want to move up to New Jersey or New York. She wanted to move to California, so we basically stayed in D.C. I practiced law at a big law firm for a year. And then myself and two law school classmates, we actually bought a very, very tiny business. It was in the home health care business. It was sending nurses and nurses' aides into effectively Medicaid uh, recipients' homes in D.C. and providing basic medical care. And the reason we bought that little tiny business is not because we knew anything about it, but because it was for sale in the Washington Post for $15,000. And the three of us wanted to start a business, and we each could come up with $5,000. So we bought that company, and I ran that business, turned it around, and we sold it. And then I realized from that experience that my small healthcare company had had a hard time getting a loan from a bank. So then I started Healthcare Financial Partners as a company to provide financing to small to mid-sized healthcare companies who were having a hard time getting bank loans. And that business really took off and built it up. It became a national business. I took it public in 1996. I think I was the youngest CEO in the history of the New York Stock Exchange at the time. And then I ran that business till we sold it. And what did you learn about healthcare uh, from that business? Well, I, I learned healthcare is really three things. It's uh, access quality and cost. So, you know, I think the problem we have in our healthcare debate now is we talk exclusively about access, which I'm all for universal healthcare and having universal access because I think it's a right of every American. But as much of the healthcare debate should be about quality and cost because healthcare costs, I mean, I saw how we were reimbursing healthcare services in that business and the the fact that it really didn't have any correlation with quality or cost or outcomes. And it really is not like anything else in the, in the business world, right? Where pretty much everything is based on the quality of your results. Where in the U S healthcare system, there's almost none of that. The affordable care act introduced some of those things, but there's a real lack of alignment in healthcare policy. It's also a different kind of thing The you know, uh, other commodities you can shop around and mm-hmm. comparison shop mm-hmm. and maybe forego if uh, if you don't like the price. Right. Healthcare is different because right. if you're having a, a gallbladder attack, you're not sitting on your computer comparison shopping. You're yeah. in an ambulance right. to a hospital, and I, 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 you know, I always find that it, you know the the notion that the market will so- solve the healthcare problem. Or the healthcare challenge, a, a little bit hard to accept given the nature of healthcare. Right. Well, it, you know, healthcare is one sixth of the U.S. economy. So right. if it was its own country, it would be one of the largest countries in the world. So it's a, it's a very big, complicated system with lots of different things. And there's clearly the emergency area that you're talking about, or the you know responding to a, a, a condition. But I think the the root cause problem with healthcare costs in this country is the fact that so much of it is linked to employment. That's a really bad model, because, you know, my dad was a union electrician. Maybe it made sense for him to have his healthcare tied to his job because he had one job for sixty years. But for most Americans, you know, I think my kids might have ten jobs. Right. So why in the world, as a matter of good economics, would we ever create a system where one of the most important things you get is to right. your job? So. This was a this 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 grew out of uh, World War Two, yep. and uh, it all made sense at the time. Yeah, but it's uh, an example. Attempts to control, you know, we had wage controls. That's and, right. And again, everything makes sense at the time. When you go back, and most of the things we have today that seem really stupid, when you actually look at where they came from, you're like, well, that actually made sense. But the problem is, you and I talked about before, the world's changed so fast, and we didn't do, you know, we didn't update any of these institutions, including healthcare. So clearly, what I think should be the model for healthcare in this company is everyone should get healthcare as a right, a basic package, kind of like what people have with Medicare. And then they should be able to buy supplemental plans on top of that. So if they want additional bells and whistles or things like that, they can buy that in the private market. But everyone has a basic portable government healthcare system that they get as a right. 
And you can pay for a system like that or begin to pay for a system like that by delinking healthcare from employment. In other words, taking away the corporate deductibility of healthcare. Mm -hmm. If we actually got rid of that, then all corporations would basically stop offering healthcare as a benefit. They might do things to help negotiate group deals for their employees and provide some benefits, but it would fundamentally change the orientation. And then you'd have a system where everyone gets a basic healthcare plan when they're born till they're 65. And if they want supplementals, they can get that. And then once they turn 65, they get Medicare. So, and that, to me, would fundamentally change a lot of these So how incentives. does this differ from, you know, we hear this big, I'm confused about all of this uh, uh, coverage and reporting on the debate over Medicare for all. Right. Because when you talk to Democrats, they're basically somewhere in the same place. Mm-hmm. And But this certainly sounds like a v- version of Medicare for all. Well, the, the reason I'm not for Medicare for all, uh, as opposed to what I just described, is I think Medicare actually works. It's one of the only parts of the healthcare system that really works. not perfect, but it works pretty well. And so I don't think w- when we're trying to fix the problems with healthcare, I don't think we should mess up what's working. I also think if we go to all the seniors in this country who have largely paid for their Medicare and say we're going to take it and give it to everyone else, just as a matter of politics, that's not necessarily a great idea. I would much rather create a new system for everyone who's not Medicare eligible. I'd roll Medicaid into that and effectively create a system that feels a lot like Medicare. Basic system is a right with your ability to buy supplementals, which is basically just how Medicare works. And then maybe in 50 years, they can merge together. But what you're describing is a pretty significant shift. Um, and uh, the argument has been against it. I mean, I'm for some version right. of this. I, I think it's nuts that we're the only country right. uh, developed economy in the world that doesn't have some sort of government health care uh, program. But uh, It's not as significant thing, a shift as you think. Because if you think about leaving Medicare alone, and if you think about starting a new program that you roll Medicaid in, because Medicaid's the largest mm-hmm. government program out there, And if you think about a situation where people can basically, so let's say at your firm here, you offer Aetna Healthcare to people, Mm -hmm. and they like it. Under my system, what would happen is all your employees would get a basic government plan. They'd probably want more of that, more more than just that, but they'd get a basic plan. You would no longer get a deduction, so you'd say, I'm out of that business. But what I will do is go to Aetna and negotiate a group rate for you all to buy the supplemental. So you'll effectively end up the same place you are, right? But, but you'll be tethered in part to this now government system. So what I, why I think my plan is achievable is not only have I figured out how to pay for it, but it also, and, and you know from your How much would that basic government package cost? Well, you, you, it, again, it depends. I don't mean for the, the, the person who's getting it, but for the, the, for the government as a whole. So you're solving for about 20 or 30 million people who don't have health care because a lot of it would basically fill in the seams. So, you know, you're talking about four or five hundred billion dollars over 10 years, which is about two X what the corporate deductibility exemption is. Right. Or deduction. So you start you start seeing how you're getting there. Um, But what I think we learned with the Affordable Care Act, you want to roll out universal health care system in a way that allows people to largely keep their health care. And that's what I think this does. Mm-hmm. Well, it would allow them to supplement their health care, but not necessarily to keep the policy they well, have. Well, again, if you go back to, to your firm here, let's say your people have Aetna, I think the way it would work is Aetna would basically have the, quote, major medical part of the plan would be the government. They'd put this wrapper on top of it and sell a supplemental. So if you had Aetna, you would probably have basically have the same plan. But to, depending how your medical costs go... Some of it would be paid for through the government plan, which is embedded in your plan. So you probably would keep your same health. And how would the insurance industry react to that? You know, I think the insurance industry would view themselves as now being in the supplemental insurance business, Mm -hmm. like they are with Medicare. Mm -hmm. And I think they'd be, you know, I mean, they'd probably end up being fewer insurance companies. Mm -hmm. But you'd have a government market. And then you'd have a private market that floats on top of it. Do you think that it's inevitable that we're going to have some sort of significant shift like this? It feels like there's a lot of momentum behind it now. You know, it used to be considered a radical notion, but that not so anymore if you look at 
Poland. What we're not going to do is throw out the entire U.S. healthcare system and start with a new system, right? That I'm pretty sure we're not going to do. And if we insist that that is what the goal is, then we will never get anything done, I think. But what I think we can do is if you think about what the Affordable Care Act did at its core, at its core, that I think was the most transformative, was Medicaid expansion, right? That to me was the most positive part. It did a lot of other positive things that are no question good and valid, but Medicaid expansion. And so what I'm really talking about is the next evolution of that. Did a lot of good for those in states where governors were willing to, governors and legislatures were willing to. Uh, expand it. So you sold this business, you did very well with it, and then you uh, s- you started a new business called Capital Source. Yeah. Took a year off, my wife and I started a foundation, we got involved in community service and philanthropy, which actually ultimately led to me running for office. We always kind of thought of our life as a third learning, a third earning, and a third serving. But back then I was, I guess I was, we were just having our... Sound like third. you spent a lot of time on the earning to get that out of the way. Well, yeah, a third. Um, and so, but I still have the entrepreneurial edge. So I, but so, and what I had observed from my prior business is that there was a real gap for small businesses. In other words, a lot of small businesses grow really fast and they outgrow their community banks, but they're too small for big banks. So I basically built a business to take care of those businesses, to finance fast growing, small to mid-sized companies. They were too dynamic and fast growing for their small local banks, but were not big enough for a big bank. So I started that business in 2000, took it public in 2003, and ran it until I decided to uh, dedicate the rest of my life to public service. And so you were running it during the economic yes. uh, crisis of 2007, 2008, which for lenders was enormously challenging. It was very painful. I mean, I watched as uh, we, you know, we had a substantial business. We had about 15 billion of assets. We were financing about 5,000 small to mid-sized businesses all over the country. I had 20 offices, well over 1,000 employees. And um, it was hard. It was really hard getting through it. I mean, we were able to get through it without taking any money from the government. But what I did see is why some people are so upset with how the financial crisis unfolded, because we were borrowing a lot of money from very large banks who were getting very significant sums of money from the government, and then they were just pulling credit lines, including to us, left and right. So it was a very hard time. I, I effectively had to strap myself to the mast for two years to get through the financial crisis. You ended up, buy, you ended up buying a, a bank as part of that strategy. Mm-hmm. A failing sort bank. sort of shifting the yeah. nature of your business. Why? Because the bank provided more stable funding source. And I felt like we needed that in light of the financial crisis. It was failing in part because it had some exposure on the it, subprime. It was a bank loans, that was right? the fifth. It was a bank in California that owned the fifth largest subprime mortgage company in the country, <clears throat> and we didn't buy that. The regulators sold that to someone else, and we bought the branches and a clean bank, basically. And then we merged our company into it, <clears throat> and then. Um, and we, you know, that worked out very well. In fact, we got an award from the Obama administration, something called the Bank Enterprise Award for lending to disadvantaged communities. And you, and then you had one more turn of the wheel, this Alliance Partners. That was just something I had invested in. When I uh, see, which was a, a effectively a cooperative to help community banks. Now, wh- at what point did you say I'm going to run for office? So I thought about it in 2006, but I didn't think it was the right time to leave my company. And there was an open Senate seat in Maryland. Why did you think about it? Because I always wanted to, you know, I shouldn't say I always wanted to do, but once I started to get involved in community service and philanthropic work, April and I realized that that's where we were getting what felt like all the rewards in our life. But one doesn't have to run for public office to do it. But I just felt like I had developed a set of leadership skills that were useful to public office. And I thought my understanding of the private economy and how it works, having spent all this time working closely with thousands of small to mid-sized businesses all over the country was something that was really needed in government because the policies that I saw coming out of the government I didn't see as very conducive to creating that type of job growth. So I thought I had something to offer. I enjoy a leadership position and taking on new challenges and solving problems. 
And there were so many things I saw about how our government functioned that I thought I could add a lot of value on. Let me ask you, you ran for Congress in 2012, and you got elected to a uh, seat in Maryland, a formerly, held, formerly held by a Republican. That's right. Been redistricted. was a little more hospitable uh, to Democrats, and you were able to win uh, that seat. And uh, you just finished and your third term, and you've left yes. Congress. How does one make the transition from being an executive— and having effective control mm-hmm. to being a member of Congress, a, 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 a junior member of Congress, right. and having virtually no control. Well, it, it was a transition, and it was frustrating at times. There's no question about that. But I, I think pretty early on, I realized that uh, it's different. At the end of the day, I, I kind of understood what I was getting into, a legislative role. I'm not one of these people who come from business that thinks government should run like a business all the time. I think there's definitely things that the private sector does well that would be good to incorporate into government more, you know, a notion of best practices and trying to incorporate more innovation and, you know, a battle of ideas, which really takes place very well in the private economy and not so well in the, in the, in the public sector. But at the end of the day, I think I pretty rapidly adapted to the notion that government is different and you have different stakeholders and you have different goals, you know, and in in the private sector, you're, you you have multiple stakeholders. I mean, I always thought of it that way. I had my shareholders, but I also had my employees and my clients. But in the government sector, you know, your stakeholders are really the society as a whole and the world as a whole. And we should be working hard to build a more just and prosperous and secure future. And it's just a different set of stakeholders and a different set of objectives. Now, uh, I, uh, you know, I watched Donald Trump on The Apprentice, mm-hmm. so I know that he was an uber businessman. Um, how do you as a businessman, first of all, has he ruined right. Has he ruined the notion of the businessman uh, president? And how do you react to him as someone who uh, uh, sort of brandishes his experience as a businessman uh, as a credential for leadership? So I don't think of Donald Trump as a business leader. When I think of business leaders, I think of people who innovate, create jobs, hire the best and the brightest, pay their bills, right, and try to invest in their communities. That's kind of what I think of as great business leaders. I think Donald Trump was a very successful business promoter. He was very good at promoting his name and getting licensing revenues for it. But did he innovate? No. Did he hire the best and the brightest? My sense is he engages in massive amounts of nepotism, which is effectively the opposite of what business people do. Did he pay his bills? No, he left bankruptcies behind him. Uh, you know, did he invest in his communities? No, I don't see any evidence of really charitable work by the Trump organization. So I just think he's not a business leader, he's a business promoter. So I, I view him as something entirely different. I also think we I, I have to intervene here because sure. someone might raise and probably should that uh, he does have the he did have this foundation that whether he contributed to it or not that gave out charitable contributions and and one of which went to uh, years ago to an organization that my wife runs called Citizens mm-hmm. United for Research in Epilepsy. We were doing this big thing on TV to raise money for epilepsy research. So I just want that sure. noted. That's fine. Uh, I've I've waited. This is I'm into my three hundredths. Uh, 300 something episodes here. I don't waiting. know if I've yet noted that, but I want to note it now. But I also think, look, at I, I think we shouldn't elect someone to be the president of the United States who's never done public service or served in government. I think about what I understand about how the federal government works now compared to what I did when I ran for office the first time. I mean, I saw in your office Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Outliers. And in that book, it talks about how you have to basically spend 10,000 hours becoming an expert at something. But once you spend 10,000 hours, you become pretty good. That's four or five or six years of work, depending on how much work you do. So do I think... I worked out perfectly because that's just about how long you spent there. That's right. (laughs) Um, So do I think we should hire a business person who's never done public service or never served in government? Absolutely not. So I think he's ruined that model. But when I talk to voters in Iowa, New Hampshire, wherever I go, and and I talk about my background as a blue-collar kid and someone who's been successful as an entrepreneur and someone who's now rolled up their sleeves, that sounds like the kind of background that I think a lot of people are looking for. You decided to run for president um, some time ago because you've 
you've spent how 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 many times have you been to Iowa in the last twenty one year? Twenty one. You were you were out of the gate way early. Yes. Uh, on this, um, so you must have either the Trump presidency persuaded you you should run for president, or um, uh, or you just decided that Congress wasn't the place to make the biggest difference for you. So I've actually loved Congress, despite the fact that what a lot of people say about Congress. I think it's been an amazing privilege to serve in Congress. I've made some amazing friendships, and I've been very impressed with the people I've served with. So I've actually, I totally enjoyed my experience at Congress, and, and giving up my seat was, was a hard decision to make, but I felt like it was the right thing to do if I'm going to dedicate myself fully to running for president. We never thought about running for president prior to, to Hillary Clinton losing. Right? It, I expected her to be the president, and I expected me to be in some capacity helping her in that role, in the Congress or maybe who knows what else. That's what I thought was going to happen. But after Hillary won, my wife and I sat down and said, listen, we got to start thinking differently about everything. And what we really care about, which is restoring a sense of unity and common purpose to this country, actually solving problems, which sometimes involves finding common ground and developing compromise with people, thinking about the future and how all this technological innovation is changing everything, and restoring a sense of almost moral aspiration to our politics, where we actually try to do things to build a be, you know a better and more just future, we believe that's exactly what the country's looking for right now. And I felt like it wasn't clear to me anyone was going to run for president on that, and, and that and, I was the person and, who as, could do it. And uh, well, you have a lot of company. Yes, I haven't cleared the field. I've noticed a lot of better known. Uh, uh, figures than yourself. First of all, but, but that's why I got in early, right? Because I think I'm the right person for the job and have the right vision. Because really, I know why I'm running, right? What I really believe in terms of what our next president should be and how they should conduct themselves and how they can get at the central question facing this country, which is how terribly divided we are and how American has increasingly been pitted against American. I am running exactly to address that issue. So I know why I'm running. So I think I'm the right person for the job and I have the right vision, but not enough people know who I am, to your point. That's why I entered the race so early. And how much of you, you, you spent a fair amount of your own money on your previous races. This is a far more expensive yes. proposition. Are you prepared to self-finance to a large degree here? So I'm, a, I'm prepared to invest heavily in my campaign. In my prior races for Congress, I raised about half the money and I invested about half. And that's probably what we'll do between now and the Iowa caucus in the New Hampshire primary. And we're, hope, we're planning on doing very well in those two things. And after that, I suspect <laughs> we'll, most of the campaign will be funded by individual donations. We're not taking any corporate packs or anything. The, um, the presence of all these candidates who are... Um, who are well-known, and we, we clearly are going to hear from more in the coming weeks. I think we've had three or four enter the race this week as we talk Kamala Harris uh, today. Elizabeth Warren has gotten into the race. Mm -hmm. Julian Castro has gotten into the race. Uh, Kirsten Gillibrand has gotten into the race, and we know that there are more uh, pages to turn. I I've been in this process, and I know how difficult it is uh, to break through. And how does someone like you break through? And how hospitable do you think the uh, Democratic Party is going to be at this juncture uh, to someone with your background, someone who's basically been in finance most of, most of your uh, business life? Uh, at a time when there's real jaundice about you know, financial engineering and sure. Wall Street and so on. Well, to some extent, uh, I'm the opposite of those things, right? Because I'm really an entrepreneur and my businesses were focused on helping small to mid-sized businesses, which I think is something the Democratic Party is really supportive of. But the best example I have is from what I hear from voters, right? So I've done over 300 events in Iowa, New Hampshire. So I've probably talked to more voters in those two early states than anyone else. And I really do think those early states still do matter. And that is, to some extent, the, the premise of this campaign. And I can tell you the bio or what I've done with my life, we almost get no pushback on any of that stuff. In fact, it's generally viewed as a positive. I think when people get to know what I did in my business career, 
and they hear that my companies were always voted the best places to work. And when I talk about how I thought about treating my employees and the kind of benefits we provided and how I thought about the company and, and what I was doing for them in their lives, and when they see these third-party validators like the Obama administration and other stuff like that, I think people are actually very comfortable with my business career and view it as a big asset. So that I'm not worried about at all. Let me just interrupt for a second sure. on this because I said I would raise this and I want to because I'm interested in your ideas. And, and, and you've written a book uh, called The Right Answer, How We Can Unify Our, Unify Our Divided Nation. So some of the answers are in there. But um, this issue of how large corporations treat their employees, we've talked about the dissolution of labor unions and the impact of globalization. Um, we've uh, And I, I alluded to before to the pressures on publicly traded companies to shareholders and uh, you know to the, the tyranny of the quarterly uh, report how do how do you give uh, employees an upside in these corporations and what can government do uh, to encourage that so that when a corporation does well not only the shareholders and executives do well but the employees themselves well so i think what we have to do is is several things and first of all this thing about public companies remember the number of public companies is actually going down quite a bit so it's a much broader issue than public companies right it's business in general because private equity is now mm -hmm. such a huge footprint in in this country they own huge parts of our economy so it really gets down to, you know, what basic protections we provide our employees, you know, the, a basic set of benefits they deserve, what we do to increase their wages or their take-home pay, whether that's minimum wage but, or more importantly, in my opinion, which is the earned income tax credit, which I think we should be doubling. But we also have to do things to encourage companies to allow workers to own more of the business. And it's an area that's been frustrating for me because – most of the pushback I've had on that issue has been from my fellow Democratic colleagues. I've had big agendas to encourage and make it easier for businesses to give equity ownership to their employees. And it's been an area that I think we have a lot more to do because if you think about how the world's going to unfold and all, how all this change and transformation is going to occur, it's likely to be very beneficial for capital and not as beneficial for labor, and we have to get workers owning more of capital in this country if we right. want to balance That's it out. That's been the trend for some time. Yeah, it's a huge problem. I mean, by 2030, they estimate the number of jobs displaced or fundamentally changed because of automation and artificial intelligence. On the low end is 15 million, on the high end is 50 million. No one knows exactly the amounts. And it'll create a lot of jobs. I mean, innovation always creates as many but not jobs. necessarily for the people who lost That's them. right. Not in the same places or for the same people. And that's the fundamental public policy. It's one of the reasons I've called for a national artificial intelligence strategy. I think we need an articulated strategy with the government, the private sector, and the nonprofit sector working together to say, what are our goals for the future of work? What are our goals for, you know, uh, kind of our digital privacy? What are our goals for how the programming decisions are made? Because a lot of biases that exist in society may be hard-coded into these programs. And national security is, is a huge issue. I mean, pretty soon in a year or two, people will be able to take your face, your voice, my face, my voice, and impose it into completely realistic video clips where we're doing things or saying things we have never said or even thought. And so just imagine I think it's highly these... unlikely that someone's going to want to expropriate my face, but I appreciate you suggesting that. Yeah, well, you'd be surprised. Um, but think about how destabilizing that's going to be, right, to the political discourse in this country. Yes. Right, if, I mean, it, it's a very no, listen, scary I, listen, thought. I share your view that I think that these changes are coming rapidly and more rapidly all the time. It's the and if we don't have a strategy we, right. as a country... Right for dealing with them, uh, we are going to very quickly pay enormous... It's arguably the only thing we should be talking about, right? Yeah. If you actually were sitting here and saying, okay, what really matters? You'd say the future of work and how we make sure we have enough good-paying jobs in this country so that people can support their families and that kids 
have opportunities. What do we got to do with our education system? What do we got to do to ensure that people invest in communities that haven't been invested in? What do we got to do to give people that basic kind of package that they need to have a shot in life? What are we going to do from a national security perspective? What are we going to do from a privacy perspective? And what are we going to do from a almost a programming perspective to ensure that these changes unfold in a way that's as beneficial to our country as possible? If we spend the next 20 years fighting politically and not doing things, there is no question these things are going to unfold badly for the vast majority of American people. But with every single one of these issues, there's an opportunity to turn it significantly and turn them into benefits for a lot of Americans. And that to me is the question for the American people in the 2020 election, which is, do you want someone who actually has a plan to address these things? Yeah. I think the other question is uh, the ability to execute on a plan in a Washington that is not just riven by partisan differences, but is completely overrun by special interests yep. who, who play an enormous role. As you know, mm-hmm. you are on the Financial Services Committee, so you know mm-hmm. uh, that uh, the, uh, you know, the, the, there, it is not myth to say that uh, special interests and lobbyists uh, leverage an incredible amount of influence Mm -hmm. in our process. And I don't know how you execute anything that is ambitious uh, without confronting that. Well, in part, you got to take the case to the American people. I mean, one of the things I've called for is, you know, as president in my first 100 days, to only do proposals that currently have significant bipartisan support in the Congress. As you and I both know, David, there's a lot of things in the Congress, from criminal justice reform to immigration reform to infrastructure policy to something I've been really passionate about, which is national service. There's a lot of big ideas in the Congress that currently enjoy bipartisan support, even things like the Affordable Care Act, which has become the biggest lightning rod in politics maybe in the last 10 years. As you know, Senator Murray and Alexander have a really good proposal to actually improve it. And I just think it would be amazing if a president of the United States at their inauguration looked out at the American people and said, I represent every one of you, whether you voted for me or not. And to prove it, my first 100-day agenda are these things, things that your good-minded Democrat and Republican members have been working on. That doesn't mean we're going to not try to do some big things, but in, we're going to actually start getting some of these things done where there's broad support among you, the American people. And I think that approach can start getting at that issue because you're actually taking the case to the American people and you're not forcing them into their political camps out of the blocks. Because what happens, I think, is because of the polarizing effect of hyper-partisan politics the way it is now, that grinds everything to a halt. And then the special interests can float on top of that and pick their spots to get little things done that enormously benefit them. You see what I mean? Well, so, there's no, there's no doubt about that. I, I would, of course, we I, I would only argue that there are, that there are, there are legitimate philosophical differences between the parties, and uh, getting at some of these really big issues that you're talking about um, is not necessarily going to neatly fit into a bipartisan nope. uh, rubric. So, nor, but by, remember my nor, first nor, nor, day nor, by the way, is. Um, I think that people are tired of Washington and tired of, um, yes, tired of gridlock, and but um, I think they're also tired of a system that they think uh, lends itself to incrementalism and at a time when we need really big ideas and really big answers. And so you're going to have to marry those two concepts uh, in this process, or I think you're going to run into skeptical Democrats. But here's an example. So climate change, which is a big issue. I, you know, I have the only bipartisan carbon tax bill in the Congress. That's right, a bipartisan carbon tax bill. And it can work, right? It's got good Republican support. I think a carbon tax bill can ultimately get passed in the Congress, where you have to structure it right. You know, you got to take all the revenues and give it right back to the American people. You can't keep the revenues for other pet projects mm-hmm. like France tried to do. I mean, France put a carbon tax in place, right? Took the revenues and cut corporate taxes with it, right? You know, obviously the citizens think that's a terrible Ms. idea. Macron was almost never heard from again. I mean, it was the dumbest idea you could possibly put forth, which yeah. is you're going to have a regressive tax on hardworking French citizens and use the money to cut corporate tax rates, right? Which benefit one percent of the country. As compared to what I've proposed, which is you put a price on carbon and you take 100% of the revenues and you put it in a lockbox and you dividend it back to the American people, you know, in a progressive way, Mm -hmm. because the tax itself is regressive. 
But there's an example of something that can actually get I, uh, done and make a difference. But right now, some people in the party are saying, oh, no, that's not good enough. We need to move the goalposts away from carbon tax because that's not good enough. And my answer to them is, you know, climate is not a linear problem. It's an exponential problem. Right, right. Every day you fight and don't make progress, right, you're, you're creating such a huge hurdle for you. I was, I was, I got to so run. So someone call that incremental. I don't think it's incremental. No, I, the question is, 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 is if it's achievable. I, uh, I was in the Congress. I mean, I was in the White House when the president tried to uh, pass a bill that put a price on carbon. And, uh, and we, 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 by twisting arms in a Democratic House, we were able to get it out of the House, and it never got a hearing in a Democratic Senate. So these things become more complex. But I, they start with enthusiasm, right? right? You have to have that. Right. And I appreciate yours. Thanks, and, David. Uh, uh, Congressman John Delaney, former Congressman John Delaney, have fun in Iowa, in New Hampshire. I look forward to seeing you along the way. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.